This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. In recent programs, we've mentioned how it is. We're probably going to go to our archives and dig out some interesting old files that we um, maybe got to, maybe never got to, and blend that together with current events. And that's what we're going to do today and probably for the next couple of shows. Let's begin with something very much rooted in the present, which was a meme I received recently, which um, I think I will now repeat for you. Someone, I don't know who, posted this meme which suggested that potatoes make french fries, they make chips, and they make vodka. To which it was added, it's like the other vegetables aren't even trying. And here's an item we absolutely can't resist, so I think we must start with. It's a headline which says, radio bursts from space are exhibiting a strange, quote, sad trombone, unquote, effect. This is a news item which comes out of the SETI Institute from a researcher named Sophia Sheikh. Article in Space.com notes that short, powerful bursts of radio waves from space are getting stranger and stranger. Astronomers have spotted 35 of these bursts. These are called fast radio bursts, also a subset of gamma ray bursts, coming from a single object with a pattern unlike any seen before. Now, we confess to not being that into gamma ray bursts here in Radio Parallax, but we were completely attracted by the notion that these fast radio bursts are exhibiting a sad trombone effect, which, of course, raises an immediate question of what the hell is a sad trombone? And I did not know, so I looked it up. Mr. McMillan? So there you have it. I'm pretty sure at some point in the past on this show, we did kind of a wah-wah-wah sound effect to one item or another, along with, uh, you know, rim shots and the like. And I guess all we can say at this point is that we, too, do not have any understanding of why these things are coming in from deep space. But, you know, on some level, we're glad they are. Now, Mr. Moreland does raise the possibility that perhaps other civilizations are monitoring what's going on here on Earth and decided to make that their editorial comment. And moving from the not very serious topics into the even remarkably less serious topics, we have this. Someone at a food manufacturing um, enterprise known as the Ferrero Group has been messing with the Baby Ruth Bar. And we've always thought that the story of the Baby Ruth bar was somewhat hilarious. And uh, many years ago, we, we talked about it on this show. And to briefly recap that conversation of God knows how many years ago, we would note that this piece of confectionery appeared on the American scene, I believe, about 1921 or so. And not coincidentally, at that time, one of the great headline grabbers in the United States of America was a man you may have heard of named Babe Ruth. I dare say to this day, 100 years later, uh, Babe Ruth is still, without a doubt, the most famous name in the history of professional baseball. And if there's one thing that advertisers do notice, it's who manages to grab headlines. So it was that the Curtis Candy Company in America introduced a candy bar they called the Baby Ruth. But to stymie the inevitable lawsuits that would follow from this stunt, they concocted a cover story. 
The candy bar named the Baby Ruth was in fact not named after baseball legend Babe Ruth. It was named after President Grover Cleveland's daughter, Ruth, who was born 40 years earlier. Now, you would think that nobody was going to buy a flimsy cover story like that one, but what do you know? People did. I read many years ago in many quasi-authoritative sources that, oh yeah, the Baby Ruth candy bar? No, it was named after Ruth Cleveland, the president's daughter. Now, we like to think that here at Radio Parallax, we just dig a little bit deeper than to take things at face value. And I don't mind saying we do make the extra effort when the matter concerns a piece of our favorite confectionery. Yes, and among the multitude of candy bars that are available to the American consumer, I, I, I personally have always rated that one somewhere near the top. Until recently, anyway. Some months back in my local 7-Eleven, I, I made one of the usual impulse purchases. Got home, unwrapped the bar, put it in my mouth, and went, yuck! Now, the Japanese apparently have pioneered a very wonderful word describing food called mouthfeel, which I think if you're, you know, if you're someone in the food industry, you're familiar with, but I always love that term, how something feels in your mouth. Well, this candy bar did not feel right in my mouth, I can tell you that. I looked on the label, and it mentioned caramel as one of the main ingredients. Now, like most people, I, I enjoy, a, you know, a cube of, of caramel now and again, but not. Not, I would add, in my favored usual collection of chocolate, dry-roasted peanuts, caramel, and, importantly, smooth nougat. This bar in question was really long on caramel and short on nougat. Well, in a dollar store a couple days ago, I spotted another one of these candy bars and thought I would give it a, another run-through because the, the, the picture on the label seemed to show quite a bit of nougat. Yes, getting the radio station a part of University of California at Davis, which has a fine food science department. If anyone from the food science department is listening, would they please drop us a line at info at Radio Parallax and explain what the hell the deal is with nougat? Mr. Miller is especially curious to know what is it, where does it come from, and how do we define quality nougat? This is going to be a work in progress. The candy bar that I purchased was better than the last one, but still wasn't quite the concoction dating back to the Babe Ruth era that... I grew up with. No, I I don't date back to the Babe Ruth era. Oh. But this this piece of Americana does go back a century. So that's 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 why we're concerned about uh, you know the the possible decline in standard, I would say of of the original product. And and we also by the way are pretty sure that this has nothing to do with the sad trombone sound effect coming in from deep space. <laughs> Anyway, moving right along, I, I think I will uh, go archival at this point, pull out one of our uh, Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Series volumes, because they're always good for a few quotes, and who couldn't use a few good quotes? Under their headline in the edition titled, Colossal Collection of Quotable Quotes, the page titled, Glass Half Empty, with the sub-headline, if you don't have anything nice to say, we'll put it on this page, was a quote from Henry Miller who said, it's silly to go on pretending that under the skin we are all brothers. The truth is more likely that under the skin we are all cannibals, assassins, traitors, liars, hypocrites, and poltroons. And for those stymied by the word poltroons, we would point out that it means a, a coward. And from a page titled, Why Ask Why, we have the following. Quoting someone named Greg Ray, the question was asked, 
At the ballet, you see girls dancing on their tiptoes. Why don't they just get taller girls? Here's one from Jay Leno. How come aspirins are packed in childproof containers, but bullets just come in a box? And one that really does give me pause from the Duc de Rochefoucauld. Why can we remember the tiniest detail of what has happened to us and not remember how many times we have told it to the same person? And finally, some items from the legendary Joan Rivers. Starting with, I said to my husband, why don't you call out my name when we're making love? He said, I don't want to wake you up. And a man can sleep around, no questions asked. But if a woman makes 19 or 20 mistakes, she's a tramp. And lastly, my favorite Joan Rivers, quote, I hate housework. You make the beds. You wash the dishes. But six months later, you have to start all over again. All right, let's move on to the present and go into the archives. I'm looking at a, uh, a yellowed copy of, gosh, it is a magazine titled Science Illustrated, which I think went belly up decades ago. My guess is this piece comes from 1988. It's titled Newton's Reach. It's written by Timothy Ferris, who teaches writing and astronomy at UC Berkeley, or at least did then, and delved a bit into the life of the most famous scientist who, well, the guy, the man who should be the most famous scientist in history, because he was undoubtedly the greatest science, scientist in history, and mathematician, probably. And no, we're not referring to Criswell, Mr. McMillan but Sir Isaac Newton. Timothy Ferris noted that he was one of a tiny handful of supreme geniuses who have shaped the human intellect, but Isaac Newton was also one of the strangest and least accessible individuals who ever lived. We're reading an account from Isaac Asimov of how it was that um, the world learned about Newton's genius. He was friends with Edmund Halley of Comet fame. Halley was trying to deduce what the law of universal gravitation might be, which would dictate uh, how things uh, move in orbits. And at one point, he asked his friend Isaac Newton if he thought he had a, an insight into this. And Newton said, oh, yeah, uh, gravity falls off as the square of the distance. To which he added, yeah, I calculated that all out. And Halley's like, really? Can I see the calculations? And Newton started looking around and among his papers, and eh, he just he, he couldn't find it. Something I can relate to. Anyway, back to the piece. Ferris notes that Isaac Newton had completed his work inventing calculus by the time he received his bachelor's degree in 1665, and that alone would have established him as the greatest mathematician in Europe and the most accomplished undergraduate, perhaps, in the history of education, but he published none of it. Publication, he feared, might bring fame, and fame would abridge his privacy. As he remarked in a letter written in 1670, I do not see what there is desirable in public esteem, were I able to acquire and maintain it, it perhaps would increase my acquaintance, the thing which I chiefly study to decline. But uh, clever man that he was, Newton apparently took a look at the moon and how far away the moon was and how fast it was orbiting and uh, calculated how much it was falling as it was moving around planet Earth. And figuring that the moon was 3,600 times as far away from the center of the Earth as we here on the surface of the planet are, he multiplied his calculation of how, how far the moon fell every second and divided it by 3,600 and yielded 15.84 feet per second for the acceleration of gravity, which is pretty close to the 16 feet per second that uh, is correct. 
And here's Timothy Ferris's uh, telling of the interaction between Halley and Newton. Edmund Halley, at age 27, had made a name for himself already in astronomy and would identify as periodic the comet, which since then has borne his name. Halley believed that the force of gravitation must diminish by the square of the distance across which it propagated. He felt certain that the inverse square law could explain Kepler's discovery that the planets moved in elliptical orbits, each sweeping out an equal area within its orbit in an equal time, but he couldn't demonstrate the connections mathematically. The man who might be able to, he realized, was Isaac Newton. Now, Newton, by this point, had quite a reputation as a sourpuss, but uh, Halley had met him a few years before, and they got along reasonably well. So while visiting Cambridge, Halley stopped by to see Newton a second time. He asked him what would be the shape of the orbits of planets if the gravitational force holding them in proximity to the sun decreased by the square of their distance from the sun. In ellipse, Newton answered without hesitation. Halley asked how he knew this answer to be true. Newton replied, he calculated it. Halley asked if he might see the calculations. Newton searched through some of his stacks of papers that littered his quarters. There were thousands of them. Some bore the spiderweb tracings of his diagrams and optics, others adorned with medieval symbols and ornate diagrams of the Philosopher's Stone. A paper crammed with columns of notes compared 20 different versions of the Book of Revelations. Other papers were devoted to Newton's attempts to show that the Old Testament prophets had known the universe is centered on the sun. But, sadly, Newton said he could not find his calculations connecting the inverse square law to Kepler's orbits. So he told Halley he'd write them out again. This he did. Three months later, in November, he sent Halley a paper that successfully derived all three of Kepler's laws from the precept of universal gravitation obeying an inverse square law. Halley immediately recognized the tremendous importance of Newton's accomplishment He hastened back to Cambridge and urged him to write a book on gravitation and the dynamics of the solar system. Thus was born Sir Isaac Newton's Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy and His System of the World, the Principia. It took Newton a while to to finish his work and finish the book. He delivered it to Halley in April of 1686. And Halley, seeing its value, and Halley, recognizing its value, published it at his own expense. Notes Tim Ferriss, never before in the history of empirical thought had so wide a range of natural phenomenon been accounted for so precisely and with such economy. should be noted that Newton was, was quite the scientist but fell short a bit in the humanities. Ferriss notes he turned a deaf ear to music, dismissing great works of sculpture as stone dolls and viewed poetry as, quote, a kind of ingenious nonsense, unquote. Now, it should be noted from the time of Newton to today, we still don't really understand why there is gravity, and the absence of a causal explanation for it in Newton's theories prompted sharp criticism. Leibniz branded Newton's conception of gravity occult. Huygens called it absurd. And Newton agreed, calling the idea of gravity acting at a distance so great an absurdity that I believe no man who has in philosophical matters a competent faculty of thinking can ever fall into it conceding he had no solution for the riddle. And yet, gravity exists. And Mr. McMillan poses the philosophical question of why does anything exist? And I have to confess, well, I don't know. I just accept that it does. And we should note that Newton had, shall we say, his quirky side as well. The economist John Maynard Keynes once purchased a trunk full of Newton's papers at an auction. He was startled to find when he went through them it was full of notes on alchemy, biblical prophecy, 
and the reconstruction from Hebraic texts of the floor plan of the Temple of Jerusalem. A shaken Keynes, it said, told a gathering at the Royal Society that Newton was not the first of the Age of Reason. He was the last of the magicians and the last of the Babylonians and Sumerians. Mr. McMillan? And speaking of Babylonians and Sumerians, which I'm pretty sure is a segue we have never heretofore used, this correspondent cannot speak highly enough about a series which is available on YouTube titled The Fall of Civilizations. These are long productions, but they are incredibly well-constructed and tell you history in a way that is so accessible, and yet it, it does not skimp on the details. The one on the Sumerians, which lasts something like two hours, is riveting. We tried to speak with author Jared Diamond many years back about his book, uh, Collapse, which talked about how it is that civilizations uh, go belly up. And as some of us look around and contemplate the possibility of American civilization going belly up, it seems more important than ever to study what has happened in the past. The philosopher George Santayana once noted that those who do not study the past are doomed to repeat it. Unfortunately, we've concluded here in Radio Parallax that even those who do study the past may also be doomed to repeat it, but we'll have to see. And on that topic, we have a piece uh, from our archives, recent archives, in this case from December 9th issue of New Scientist magazine, piece by complexity scientist Peter Turchin titled, Heading for a Fall? Question mark. The subheadline is, reports that Western civilization is about to collapse are premature. Now, back in 2010, in Nature magazine, Turchin forecast that crises would escalate and peak during the 2020s. He notes that, that a decade later, the evidence is supporting that prediction. To which he added in this article, you might have come across some of these ideas recently following the publication of my book, End Times. Perhaps unsurprisingly, reviewers use words like collapse, revolution, and even doom to describe my work. So it may surprise you, he said, to learn that I don't believe collapse is inevitable. In fact, my latest research reveals something fascinating and encouraging. Human societies have evolved to become less prone to collapse, to which I can't resist adding, but previous civilizations didn't have to contend with Donald Trump. I don't have time to go over this, uh, this piece in great detail, but I just want to extract uh, the item that he set in a sidebar titled, How to Avert a Crisis. Turchin notes that Western civilization is in trouble, but analysis of history reveals how we can avoid collapse. The trick is to bolster the right kind of social complexity, in particular institutions and policies that boost the well-being of the majority of people and reduce conflict between elites. He lists five. One, progressive taxation reduces the creation of too many wealthy elites and the economic impoverishment of the rest. Two, a universal right to vote and the election of public officials constrain arbitrary and selfish behavior by rulers. Three, labor-protecting institutions such as unions and minimum wage decrease economic inequality. Four, a welfare state equitably promotes the well-being of all citizens. And five, international cooperation through the United Nations and its agencies such as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change helps address global challenges. Well, all right then. More on all of those later. And as we look back on uh, previous civilizations and uh, their rise and fall, 
we would cite a New Yorker article. Actually, this is from the January 1st and 8th edition of this year. Article by Manveer Singh titled, Jingus the Good. And it is a summary of several new books which have come out taking a look at the Mongol Empire. Now, I was not aware of this fact, but apparently last September, Pope Francis became the first leader of the Catholic Church ever to visit Mongolia. Author Singh notes that it must have been a humbling stopover. The country has fewer than 1,500 Catholics. And at the welcoming ceremony in Ulaanbaatar's main square, it, well, attracted just a few hundred spectators. He notes that one of the attendees had come out to do his morning Tai Chi and unknowingly ended up at the event. He notes, not everyone understood why the pontiff was there. A caterer at a banquet for the Vatican entourage asked a Times reporter, what are Catholics again? But uh, Pope Francis was prepared, speaking to diplomats, cultural leaders, and the Mongolian president. He celebrated the religious freedom protected under the Mongol Empire during the 13th and 14th centuries. He also celebrated the Pax Mongolica, the period of Mongol-enforced stability across Eurasia, citing its absence of conflicts and respect of international law. Now, it should be noted, this is quite a change from the usual way over the centuries that Christians and Muslims alike have regarded the Mongol invaders from the East. You may recall that back in November of 2002, Osama bin Laden claimed that the George W. Bush administration had been more destructive than Hulagu of the Mongols, who did a really nasty job when he sacked Baghdad. And months later, in the run-up to the Iraq War, Saddam Hussein referred to the United States and his allies as the Mongols of this age. But uh, wouldn't you know it, at this point in time, there's been a decades-long effort to overhaul narratives about the barbarity of the nomads uh, of the East, especially the Mongols. This book review in The New Yorker by Manveer Singh goes through four different, uh, four or five different books that talk about the good things about having an empire that stops all the, the that stops all of the uh, quibbling and fighting that goes on between, you know, petty kingdoms, and opened up trade. I mean, this is when Marco Polo allegedly went to China, which was a big lie. He never did. And we talked about that years ago. But anyway, um, the world's greatest land empire, which to this day it, it, it still is, extending from Europe all the way to the Pacific Ocean, certainly did wonders for trade. This book review notes that the idea that the Mongols were the architects of modernity is a mainstay of new scholarship. And he notes that uh, the authors of these books were able to draw upon earlier works such as the anthropologist Jack Weatherford's Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World, which we're happy to report is available on Radio Parallax in our archives, radioparallax.com, because we were fortunate enough to speak to Jack Weatherford back in 2004, 05, I forget which. Come to think of it, I don't know that we've, we've ever re-aired that broadcast, and when we have a need to do so, which we may in the, in the weeks and months to come, we'll have to dig that one out. Notice to our friend Guy, currently facilitating uh, this broadcast, if you're hearing it on KDVS 90.3 FM in Davis. All right, in the four and a half minutes we have left, let's go back to the archives. In this case, an article from New Scientist from the 6th of August, 2022. On this program, we've been a little bit skeptical and, and hard on, I think you might say, AI. But the article titled Cracking the Code by Allison George gives us, uh, gives us some reason to be optimistic about it. Notice the article, behind a locked door in the British Museum in London, there's a beautiful library with high arch ceilings. Inside 
this secret room, Irving Finkel opens a drawer and pulls out a clay tablet. Cracked and burnt, it is imprinted with the tiny characters of the world's oldest written language. It, elicits, it is a list of omens. Another drawer reveals another tablet. This is a prayer to the god Marduk, says Finkel, who is assistant keeper of ancient Mesopotamian script languages and cultures at the museum and one of only a handful of people in the world who can read this long-dead script known as cuneiform, or at least do so fluently. The author notes that they are photographing these clay tablets in order to apply AI to their deciphering. Noted author Allison George, this is part of a revolution that is using today's computing power to bring back this 5,000-year-old record and unlock new secrets of the world's first civilization. And yes, we're again talking about the Sumerians. The piece notes that the story of cuneiform begins about 6,000 years ago in Mesopotamia, which is the fertile region between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that is now known as Iraq. There was a shift from living in small agricultural settlements to large urban centers. Here, the Sumerian people built the first city-states. Uruk was one of the most important, with temple complexes and a canal system. It was home to up to 50,000 people by 3000 BC. And although the people there spoke a language Sumerian that is completely different from any other that we know of and has long since died out, we have an incredible record of their lives because it was here, as far as we know, that writing originated. It was made by pressing the end of a reed into moist clay to make wedge-like shapes, giving this script its modern name, cuneiform, from the Latin cuneus, which means wedge. So that although we now associate writing with poetry and literature, this early example was nothing of the sort. It was used solely for administrative purposes, to keep track of the transfer of slaves, for instance, or the receipt of animals. A typical example shown to me at the British Museum is a record of rations of beer, with a drawing of a jar denoting the beer and a person's head and circles to signify the amount. Anyway, of course, it did eventually progress onto the kind of writing we associate with literature. And the most famous text of all of these cuneiform clay tablets is the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's about a king's quest for eternal life and includes a section that appears to be a precursor to the biblical story of the flood. The article notes that the impact of Sumerian culture still ripples through our lives today, not only through our biblical stories, but in our clocks. Their sexagesimal counting system with a base of 60 is the reason why we have 60 seconds in a minute and a 360-degree circle. It would be wonderful if AI can decipher a lot of these clay texts and uh, translate them so that we can today, 5,000 years later, read what the Sumerians were writing. And we furthermore hope that that will happen before AI turns on us viciously. And before our KDBS sponsors turn on the station viciously, we think we need to take a short break. So let's do that. You are listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, or, or maybe an avatar version of myself. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Neither am I. Well, is calm. He could not keep all his kings supplied with sleep. We'll climb that hill no matter how steep When we get up to it Ooh-wee, ride me high Tomorrow's the day my bride's gone 